Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with professional snowboarder Mark Landvik, better known as Lando. If you follow snowboarding, then you know who Lando is. If you don't follow snowboarding, then all you really need to know is that he's a top-tier snowboarder. He's been instrumental in snowboard videos that raise the bar in the progression of the sport, as well as the way action sports are filmed. Specifically, The Art of Flight, That's It, That's All, and The Fourth Phase. Okay, this is the part of the intro where I give a shout-out to the Crude Company men. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, Sharon Liska, and Scott Liska. Thank you to everyone for your support. This podcast would not be possible without you. If you'd like to subscribe and help keep this podcast going, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. And if you have a chance, a review on iTunes also helps a lot. Okay, back to Lando. I think this is one of those moments where this podcast lives out of its background, as one iTunes review put it. Meaning, the subject of this episode is in my wheelhouse. Snowboarding. Which is an industry Lando has successfully made an exceptional career in. From the outside, it looked like he was killing it. But from the inside, Lando was struggling. Not with snowboarding, he had that on lock. It was something else. His mental health was declining and he didn't know why, so he was understandably scared. So in 2015, at the height of his career, Lando left the filming of The Fourth Phase, easily one of the most anticipated documentaries of 2016. What followed was a manic episode that lasted about five months, followed by a year and a half of heavy depression. Today, he's much better, and understands why all that went down. So here he is, Mark Landvik. Mike is hot. Mike's hot. Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Oh, okay. I was like, dude, I gotta go get dressed up. Cause you thought that I could see you. Yeah. No, this is <laughs> this is just this is just me and you talking. <laughs> Oh, well, dude, I've watched Joe Rogan, so I know he does fucking, like, 10 karate kicks before he gets in there. Well, I mean, we can still do karate kicks, dude. All right, good. (laughs) So how does it feel to be Lando? Right now, it feels good, man. Yeah. Feeling feeling good these days. Had a nice trip home to Juneau, and now... uh, just got black last night, and now we're white here. Getting her done on a clean feed. The code. Right on, dude. Am I allowed to drink coffee, or does that mess up? Nah, dude, I got a cup of coffee as well. Okay. So how was Juno? It was good. It was really nice. It was uh, great weather. Did a little finish work for your brother, helping him out with the new house, and... Uh, yeah, it's always good to just go home. Tight, tight sense of community there. Does that tight sense of community, does it kind of uh, help you get back on track? Yeah, definitely helps me get grounded for sure. Um, past couple of years when I go back, a lot of times I kind of feel like crap. You know? So it's really nice to go back when I'm actually 
in a better headspace and not just trying to hide out. <laughs> Is that what you've done in the past? You've kind of receded back to, to Juno to hide out? Mm, not to hide out, but um, just dealing with stuff over the last five years, you know, kind of when I get sunk into a hole here, um, I'll tend to go up there and just try to try to lay low. But it's uh, last summer and this summer I got to get back when I'm feeling pretty good. And it's, it, you know, it's nice. I don't like going home and feeling like I'm hiding from people. For sure. So this, this time wasn't like that? No, not at all. So I know you want to talk about a few things today, namely mental health and community. But before we get into that, would you mind talking a little about how you got into snowboarding? Sure. Um, from the beginning, from the top. Yeah, let's take it from the top. I mean, there's um, there's listeners of the podcast that don't really have a frame of reference for for snowboarding or for Lando, if you can believe it. <laughs> oh, it's easy for to believe. <laughs> But I'm pretty gullible in that sense. So, um, well, yeah. So snowboarding, I well, I grew up in Juneau, Alaska, and um, started skiing when I was about four, I believe. And when I was my buddy had a snowboard, and one night he asked if I wanted to try it, night skiing, and uh, I gave him my skis. We did a switch boots, and that was it. I was literally linking turns, you know, first go. And then it was uh, full bore from there. Later in high school, um, Borderline moved to Juneau. Dad um, opened up a shop downtown and I ended up... And that was my dad, correct? Yeah, Scott Liska. Um, And so he ended up bringing a shop from Juno because he already had a really well-established one in Anchorage and ended up getting on the borderline team, which was just a super tight pack of friends. And we just rallied. And so, you know, we would do trips down, down South and kind of follow the van's triple crown and started trying to get momentum through those contests. And what about the Juno boys? I mean, could you explain the Juno boys? Yeah, I mean, we all kind of came together like a nice pair of butt cheeks um, <laughs> through Borderline, you know? It was, it was your dad opening the shop there that kind of set it all in motion. Um, and so, I don't know, I'd say there's about 15 of us for the most part. And... You know, Mike Morgan, Ray Weedman, uh, Chris Courier, Ryan Collard, Dan Nueva. Um, dude, I, I know I'm going to forget people. Dave Furman, uh, Ashley Call, Chuck Cladney. And if I forget anybody, I'm sorry. But anyways, so... At one point, Steve Graham and his crew started coming up to film 
and they were flying in helicopter doing backcountry stuff. Um, that was around like Project Six, some of those older films. And you know, Steve put Dave and Buck on reality snowboards, SMP, cert goggles, Grammy gaskets, and you know, we were all just kind of getting flow that and we realized that you know this is a possibility to pursue this um pursue the passion especially since they were doing backcountry stuff you know less not graham wasn't into contests and stuff like that when we'd go and do contests it was we were going against people riding parks day in and day out you know icy icy jumps icy big jumps so Mm -hmm. showing us kind of that we could that's an option if we wanted to you know make this some kind of a career and everybody who was in the crew you know could have been in the exact same position i was in professionally snowboarding but you know injuries certain setbacks um, were a big part of that and thankfully i was able to you know ashley call actually did really good. He was um, doing a ton of big mountain contests. Was winning the Varia Extreme over in Europe. He won that once or twice. Um, you know, Jeremy Jones is big fan of Ashley. I mean, anybody who's seen him ride big mountains and now pal surfing, um, just he has really good style for a big mountain rider, which isn't you know um, something you typically see. So do you guys hang out still? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Still like the tightest group of friends I have, 100%. Um, Courier's a heli pilot in Hawaii, so I go over there a couple times a year. He lets me sit behind the stick, and I'll fly from the airport over in Pauly Coast. And, you know, he he was doing long lining with some herbicides for invasive species for a while so i'd go and be his wingman watching out for trees and stuff when we do that um mike lives over there as well um we actually did our first annual juno boys trip to mccall idaho this winter which we've been planning and uh you know now that we got one year on our belt it's gonna be a like i said annual thing and it was uh it was really cool to be out there with everybody again you guys all grew up snowboarding together and to be together again in that type of atmosphere, you know, with, with the snowboarding and the pow and I mean, was it like old times? Oh yeah. Didn't skip a beat at all. Um, and for me, it was, uh, it was a nice change pace. Um, this last winter, uh, well, a couple of years ago, probably two, I guess two years ago, Tom um, let me go. Following year, Vans let me go. And LibTech has been my board sponsor for about 20 years. I've had, I don't know, something like 10 promos with them, and I just wasn't really, um, I don't know, I wasn't really feeling it, I guess, wasn't happy with the direction things were going. And it was, uh, just wasn't a place for me anymore. I felt, you know, I love those guys 
hundred percent, man. I like couldn't be happier with all of my sponsors, but it was, uh, you know, my first winter not having any sponsors, which was, you know, something I hadn't done for 20 years. And so to be back with those guys in the mountains was, uh, I guess, per, you know, perfect situation. Was it you that left LibTech or, or was it the other way around? Um, no, I decided that, um, I wanted to go a different direction and yeah, I would say it was my decision. I think they were thrown back at it, you know, um, cause I could have continued to roll my pro metal out for, you know, quite a few more years. And like I said, I just, uh, just felt like it was time to move on, not from snowboarding, but just, um, you know, from that sponsorship. Was there any specific reason? I would say there was definitely a few underlying reasons. And I mean, I don't, I don't really want to get into it that much just because it is what it is. I'm not, you know, like I said, I love those guys don't hold any grudges, but Things just, um, you know, a lot of companies are being bought out by corporate companies these days. Literally, Volcom, Vans, and, you know, LibTech, all my three main sponsors for the last 15, if not 20 years. No, probably like 18 years. And, yeah, through that, I just saw changes and... I wasn't happy anymore, and I felt like if I, you know, stuck around just to, just for the sake of having a pro model and kind of riding it out, it wasn't being true to myself, and felt like, you know, maybe some of the allocations that I was, you know, getting money, incentives, stuff like that, you know. Those could go to other runners on the team and just felt like it was the right uh, move for me. You know, having known you as long as I have and having been there when you had that, that kind of big, um, that big event in your life back in 2015, one thing that I really took out of that is you were set out on this new path to self-betterment. And this kind of seems like it, it fits in alignment with that. Yeah, I would agree. hundred percent. Um, like you said, you know, had a rough couple years and, um, came out of the, the darkness a little bit and had a full new direction. I wanted to go with myself with, um, you know, I did, when I pursued snowboarding as a career, I kind of left a lot of the things that I used to do that brought me happiness behind as far as art's concern, um, skateboarding, I was, you know, didn't want to get hurt, things like that. And, you know, when I came, kind of came out of that fog, I just decided I should probably do everything that I did when I was younger that made me happy. And even though it's still been ups and downs, it's definitely 
put me in a place where I have a lot cleaner direction of where I where I'm going in my life and what I want to accomplish. So you said you weren't really able to pursue those things that made you happy when you were younger. Are you getting back to those things now? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And what are they? Um, well, art for sure. With uh, that same bar that you came down um, and we were hanging out was, well, that was actually when I, you know, kind of just went in a full different direction. And um, throughout the years, I'd kind of turned my garage into a wood shop and, you know, something just clicked and I started hanging out with Jamie Lynn quite a bit more. He introduced me to Matt French, um, one of my friends that I grew up with in Juneau, James Johnson, who is uh, my partner at Ingrained Inc., came up and it was it's just like there was so much energy and it was just such an amazing time and you know i just instead of doing just woodwork that i had been doing i fell into all these different um mediums you know working with metal concrete um working with concrete metal and wood together carving painting started writing a lot more. Um, I really liked writing when I was in high school. I was in honors English and, you know, spent a lot of time with my art teacher and in art class. And those were the things that I really, you know, was passionate about in high school, besides snowboarding. And being in a darker place in my life, I got back into writing, um, which helped me you know, kind of makes sense of stuff that was going on and it's been such a good outlet for me. And yeah, so it's just kind of come full circle to the things that I would, that I really loved doing when I was younger and also like uh, media production, you know, working with film and just getting back into that after, you know, like, 10 years of working with Brain Farm and Travis, we were just running so hot that once it all kind of settled out, I was able to figure out, you know, what I wanted to, what I wanted to get back to. So you mentioned working with Brain Farm and Travis Rice. Do you, are you still in contact with them? Yeah, that's actually kind of why we're getting a late start. Rice threw me off curveball call at like <laughs> 645 <laughs> and uh pinning him down for a phone call is a pretty heavy task in itself <laughs> had to wrap out with him for a little bit and so and yeah and as far as brain farms concerned um kind of like the same crew that i had with the juno boys you know um there's about 10 of us that were you know maybe not all there from the beginning, but as things progressed, we formed such a tight crew. And I keep keep in contact with all those guys and still, you know, still have projects I want to do. And, you know, those are going to be the guys that I hopefully will be able to bring into some of the stuff I want to work on. You know, when I came down to Bellingham 
in, I'm pretty sure it was 2015, I remember one of the things that you told me was that when everything went down, that went down, you had so many people kind of leave your side, people that you thought were friends and the people that were left, you were, you were like, these are my friends. And so are you in a place right now where you're like, okay, like Juno boys are my friends. Like Travis Rice is my friend. You know, some of the brain farm guys are my friends. Like you're able to have that like solid group of friends again. Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, and, and that being said, it's not like I'm, I'm not friends with, you know, the people that I felt like didn't support me as much as they could. Um, you know, tough situations or hard people to handle depending on whatever people are going through in their life at that time and vice versa. And so it's not something that I would say I've lost friends from. Um, but I do, you know, I respect the fact that people maybe couldn't deal with what I was going through and couldn't be there for me, but I don't hold it against anybody at all. We've mentioned, we brought up what you were going through back in 2015. Are you comfortable talking about it all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, talking about everything I've gone through and, you know, stuff that I still deal with is one of the best um, ways for me to still deal with this stuff and find, uh, find new light and everything. So, fire away. so what are we talking about here for the people who aren't familiar with everything that that went down sure um so yeah like i said we started there for the initial film um that we did with brain farm and travis rice um which was that's it that's all our second film was the art of flight and then in 2000 either 13 or 14 we started filming for the fourth phase and at that point it was still a brain farm production but um, Red Bull had taken the reins as far as ownership and um, we had such a success with the art of flight that it you know it set the bar pretty high and um, the pressures definitely mounted and so when we were filming so this was a four-year film probably five or six years in the making total as far as planning and stuff like this originally it was supposed to be a two-year film but we got just kind of beat down with conditions and you know stuff that ended up not working out that we had to push it back and we went to japan was our first trip so we did Japan, where we had filmed, you know, that night segment, uh, Shin Biwajima, Travis, Mikel, and myself filmed that. We were doing, I think we did film 21 out of 23 days that first year. And right out of that, we flew straight to Russia, Kamchak Peninsula, which is directly across the Bering Strait from Alaska. And you know, things had been, it, like I said, it was a stressful situation and I wasn't really 
you know, feeling as much stress as much as like the filmers, the production guys, Travis, you know, because uh, I was just there really to snowboard, have fun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so almost like the, you know, I've, uh, a lot of times I would try to push through that stuff and like be that guy that would uh, see the lighter side of it and, you know, hopefully bring us back to a place where we weren't just running around like crazy and, you know, and realize that it's like, dude, this is, it is what it is. We're going to film what we can. It's going to be great, but we can't have this attitude that we're, uh, you know, nothing's good enough and we're blowing it in some sense. And so, you know, you can only, you can only do that for so long. So it started to break me down a little bit. And then we went to Russia and things just kind of went a different direction. Everything that we had planned, it uh, wasn't working out. Um, The reason we had gone to Kamchatka is Travis had spent two years, like, mapping out places to go. And so Kamchatka was a jumping off point where we were going to fly a helicopter down. And in the film, we did get down there to uh, this island. And so there's a string of islands that goes from the end of the south end of Kamchatka Peninsula all the way to Japan. And so we were trying to get to this island volcano named Onokatan, which is a volcano out in the middle of the freaking ocean. Um, and has a lake in the middle, and it has another volcano in the middle of that. So that was like the, you know, that was our golden goose, our golden egg, I guess. You know, that was what we were going for. And originally we were, you know, we had set a kind of a guideline, like we need at least seven days to go down there. It's, you know, a three-hour flight just to get to the southern end, almost a 45-minute jump over the ocean with the helicopter. And at that point, that would be our staging area where we would then move to Onakatan with, you know, two weeks of camping gear, survival stuff, all that. And uh, we just kept getting worked by conditions, you know. It snowed five feet. And it would blow it. The Siberian winds would literally blow it all off the mountains. We'd have five feet of powder in the valley where we were staying. And <laughs> then we'd be riding the gnarliest conditions in the world up on the up on the mountains. And so we ended up pushing our, you know, our four-week trip back another week. And we saw a window. But it was only three days at this point. And so we were just seeing a lot of red flags along the way and continuing to look past them, which is something that, you know, I've always been able to pull myself out of situations where I didn't feel comfortable as far as snowboarding is concerned. And, you know, so it just built. And so when we flew to that island, that was our jump off point. As soon as landed, and this is a military island there's a military base on it as soon as we landed um we we couldn't get out of the heli for almost two hours um we were in for over six hours 
And they, and Travis and Maxime had been working on the permits for almost two years and we had the permits. But in Russia, things are a little bit different. If you have a uniform and a gun, you are authority, which is, which is a scary place to be. And so it was getting late in the evening. We only had a couple hours of light left and, you know, they made us, we were on the phone with the U S embassy, all the dudes back at Red Bull, all the guys back at brain farm and Jackson, all the lawyers, um, and so they made us sign these waivers all in Russian, which obviously we can't read. I don't, I don't speak or read Russian. And saying that we willingly flew into military airspace, knowing that we weren't supposed to, essentially, is what it said. And we had to sign it to be able to leave. And so... We what were they going to do it. if you didn't sign it? I don't know. Keep us there and detain us longer. And, I mean, we, we had no idea. All that we knew is that we needed to get out of there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Maxine was just as thrown back as we were. And so, finally, we all signed it. I wrote in, you know, all capitals, I'm signing this piece of paper, but I don't know what it says, and I don't agree with it, um, and they're making us sign it. And so at that point, you know, we were we were just broke, dude, like all of us. Um, the flight back was, we didn't say a word. We were all just beside ourselves. And so that was like, you know, kind of the breaking point for me. We left two days later, and uh, this is pretty crazy, too. You don't even have to have a gun and a badge for authority. So the same woman who ran our gear through um, when we flew into Kamchatka, they had charged us, I think, I don't know, it was like 10 grand or something to get all our bags there. We had a carnet of over, and a carnet is a list of everything that we have in every single camera bag, essentially, because mm-hmm. some of the cameras we're using uh, are used for military defense. And, you know, if it goes into the wrong hands, it's like a missile guidance system. So if you don't come back with that camera, you're, uh, you're in big trouble. So we had like 90 camera cases, you know, gear bags and total probably 130 gear. Bags. So they essentially like put us all on the plane and they were trying to charge us 50 grand to get our bags back. And Jeez. so JK, Jimmy Chin and Travis Rice um, were in the airport, like essentially negotiating with the same woman who we had paid 12 grand for on the way there. We were sitting on the plane for three hours, dude. And we would see our bags come in and our bags go off. And then our bags go in and our bags go off. So it was the negotiation. And so finally we got to leave and it cost about 20 grand 
And so we all flew home. I flew back to Seattle. Um, the, my girlfriend at the time picked me up and I was just like, I was tripping. I didn't know what was going on. I had crazy anxiety. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't like headspace. And so at that point I went to see a therapist and he put me on, um, an SSRI, which is like an anti-anxiety medicine. And so 10 days later we were going to Alaska. So I hopped on the plane, went to Alaska, and it was one of the worst years in 100-year history of snow in Alaska. So that did nothing for my anxiety, my confidence. And, you know, just like before, seeing all these red flags and pushing through it and pushing through it, and finally I just broke, and I was, wasn't comfortable. And I said, like, we were, it was like 6.30 in the morning, in the heli and I just broke down like I don't know started crying like put my head down out of the heli told travel I'm like dude I, I don't know what's going on I can't I can't go up like, I'm done I'm 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 not getting in the heli so I walked away and uh Kurt Morgan you know kind of called me down and said, you know just just go and relax just chill we'll we'll be back later and later in the day, you know, just talking to my girlfriend at the time, I decided I was going to leave, which was scary because it was like, felt like I was, you know, giving up on the crew and wasn't sure how my sponsors feel about it, if I was going to lose them, you know, all this stuff. So I flew home and it was, I was like a full depressed um, depression, anxiety, all this stuff I'd never felt before. And so, you know, go down the road a little bit and usually with an SSRI, if you have like predispositions to mental health, um, like in your family, in your background, um, and you have like alcohol in your background um it's kind of the last especially mental health any kind of mental health and alcoholism in your family it's the last kind of drug that you want to put somebody on because um it'll stop working about a year later typically and can throw you into a manic state which is the beginning of um bipolar and so that happened and you know and i kind of had snapped out of this and um through that time my girlfriend had broken up with me she just finished med school was moving up literally moved in and moved out a week later and through other stuff that was going out i had fallen out with my friends you know it was like a super hard place to be and like I said, that, that drug reacted and I was pushed into a max state, um, and which lasted about five months, which I don't know if, you know, some people don't know what this manic state is. It's a, it's a next level source of energy almost. Um, you, you have a sense of euphoria, your brain's moving faster than it ever has. And, uh, 
productive um, and it's you know I was seeing things in such a different light it was it was amazing I mean it truly is it's like it's like your brain is on this like elevated level um, and so yeah that was kind of the kicker and five months later that that wore off and that fall and it was like I just fell into this gnarly 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 depression um, and at that point I didn't know what to do where to go and like I said uh, my girlfriend at the time was my ex-girlfriend at the time she just finished naturopathic med school and so she was the only person I felt like like that I could turn to because I didn't know what was going on and my dad had come down and I literally had like a mountain of bills you know that I hadn't even looked at like didn't care in that manic state I was just on a new level I bought like seven cars <laughs> you know started working on <laughs> old whips like 66 you know Chevy stepside truck uh, 68 Chevelle like I mean I was just doing stuff that I'd never done before and it was so fun and so it's kind of like I just woke up out of this like and had finally seen everything that was going on for the first time it was eye-opening I was like holy holy shit and I was really scared and it got to a point where none of us knew what to do so I went to the emergency room and they essentially said, you know, a social worker, I sat there for eight hours in a gown, you know, laying in this uh, hospital bed. And there was a sheet in between me and another girl who was, I don't know, probably about 18 or 19, her and her mother there. And she had had some problems with bullying in school um she was super depressed anxious uh, she had been cutting herself same thing her mom didn't know what to do she didn't know what to do brought her in there and she's pregnant and you know the social worker was i don't i don't know maybe almost condescending and like didn't want this girl to have a baby um and she felt like that wasn't her choice to make and you know the the social worker was just putting all this pressure on her that made me feel uncomfortable and especially made them feel uncomfortable and as soon as the social worker took off they were like let's get out of here and uh so they bounced and then it was my turn so the social worker came in and essentially if you're not going to commit suicide that night there's nothing they can do for you and so I sat, sat for eight hours just to have somebody tell me that. How did that feel? Um, well, for me, it was, you know what I mean? It, it sucked. But listening to what went down with that girl was really disheartening. And, you know, I really felt for her. And it was just eye-opening to see how how unproductive and how backwards um, the mental health resources are. And so I went home and was still in this 
unstable base. And so finally, I went and met this nurse practitioner. And I had already been doing some research myself about everything that was going on, how I was feeling. And so I kind of had this inkling that I was going to be diagnosed with bipolar. And sure enough, within 10 to 15 minutes of uh, our initial conversation, which was just, I mean, literally all it is is a background um, history of your family, mental health, alcoholism, drug, you know, that stuff. And drugs have never been an issue for me, but um, we definitely partied growing up in Alaska, 100%. Mm-hmm. A lot. And uh, don't regret that at all. Like, I, you know, like we had so much fun, but it put me in a place where I was pre predisposed with these, you know, these other factors in my family history. And yeah, like I said, within 10 to 15 minutes, I was, you know, diagnosed with bipolar from my nurse practitioner. And so at that point, obviously stopped taking the SSRI anxiety medication. And she put me on some other medications, which was about an eight month to 10 month process of, I don't know, 10 different medications, you know, just cycling through them because none of them were working. Mm -hmm. And, and then eventually one of them worked almost instantly. And, you know, I came home and I was, whoa, I'm, I'm back, you know, feel like I have energy. Didn't, didn't, didn't feel any of that stuff that I'd been dealing with. And yeah, so I guess that's kind of the breakdown of how it all kind of went down. So I know when we were texting this weekend, you said you wanted to talk about mental health. What did you come out on the other side of that experience learning or wanting to share with people? Well, I don't know. I guess coming out on the other side would maybe be the wrong way to put it just because I still deal with this, not on the level that I did. Um, okay. Typically, when you have a manic and depressive episode, um, depression will last at least twice as long as your manic episode. So my manic episode was five months. My depression was like a year and a half to two years of heavy depression. And, you know, I learned a lot more about myself than I ever would have if I kept going on the same path. And I guess one other thing to, you know, to bring into is that two years before the um, 2015 when we started filming and kind of had the manic episode, I had stopped drinking, quit drinking, cold turkey. I was over it. Just knew it was something I didn't want in my life. You know, from a age of about 19 or 20, I, I knew I was an alcoholic and I knew at some point in my life that it would be something that I would drop because I didn't, I didn't want to succumb to booze being something that's going to bring me down. And, you know, I just got to a point where it was killing me. And I felt like if I wanted to snowboard and keep falling the stuff I love, 
have to get rid of it. And so that was a big part of, you know, getting to a point where I, I fell into all this because if I just kept drinking, I, you know, probably would have masked it for the rest of my life. Um, so all this stuff, you know, it's not like, you know, it's predis had these predispositions to, um, mental health issues, but it's all, it all happens because of something else, you know, like I quit drinking. So that got me to a point where I was not masking it anymore. And then the stress from working on the film put me in a position where my anxiety went through the roof. And then seeing that therapist that put me on a SSRI, you know, put me in a position where the next year I flew into a manic state. And then from there went to the depressed state. And so it's, it's been a learning process and it's, this. Yeah. it always will be for sure. But I think it's the pivotal point in my life made me a better person and continues to, but it's not, it's not easy. It's a lot of hard work. And there's plenty of times I thought that things would never get better or I would never be myself again, you know? What would you say to other snowboarders or athletes in general going through the same thing? It's a lot of hard work, you know? Um, I have a lot of times in our life where it's easier to continue to do things that you know maybe aren't the healthiest or in your best interest, but it's not easy to step away from them and you know, open yourself up to all the everything that you've been almost uh, suppressing, you know, mm -hmm. and it's scary because at some point you feel like there's no way you're ever going to be the same person you are 100%. And, you know, I'm super fortunate to have awesome family and friends and, you know, only imagine what it would be like trying to go through you know going through what I did if I didn't have support and definitely came out on the other end with so much empathy for life in general and for everybody because I knew that nobody had any idea what I was going through and so looking into that now it's like that guy who's an alcoholic or that guy who's homeless and living on the street, you know, and it's like, you know, something happened that got him to that point. And I, you know, I'd probably, shit, I don't know. I might be dead if I didn't, if I didn't have the support I did, even if it wasn't, um, always felt like any of it was working, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the biggest thing was empathy and just understanding that we have no idea what's going on in somebody else's mind. And the only way to, to that point is to, to be open and honest. Have you thought about using this experience that you had as a way to spotlight the need 
um, of attention to be paid to mental illness or mental health in action sports or snowboarding in specific? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I would say more than just uh, centered to action sports in general, you mm. know, um, like the rate of increase in anxiety, depression, mental health, whether it be schizophrenia, bipolar, um, suicide, like the, the increase in the last five to 10 years is astonishing, scary. Mm-hmm. And there's so many factors that go into it and things are moving so fast um, in the society we live in right now. I mean, a lot of this stuff's just overlooked. And by the time we get to a point where we understand it, like we're going to be far gone. And so the most joy I get out of anything in life is helping others and like sharing this experience is like the response I get whenever I do is, you know, it feels right. It feels like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, um, when I share my story, whether it be, um, before I was diagnosed, me and Liam Gallagher did a interview in a 12 minute video called constant evolution that dealt with, the anxiety and depression I'd gone through and, you know, releasing that, like, I mean, the, the outpour of people that were, um, I don't know, so grateful and so, I guess, I don't know. Uh, it's just a way for me to keep dealing with it. And when I do stuff like that, when I share my story, it's, uh, it's it's so good for other people and same thing goes for myself you know it even when you're in a horrible depressive state you know like looking back at some of the responses i got from people or just you know other people dealing with the same stuff reaching out and you know me just taking the time to talk to them or write them back on facebook or even just putting that story out there, it makes me feel great. And it makes me know that it's that I really need to pursue not only for myself, but for other people. Yeah. So all in all, how is your life different now than when you were filming with Brain Farm or when you were snowboarding constantly? Mom. Well, when that was going on, you know, in the height of my career, it was, everything was perfect, you know, everything was epic. It was like, I was making a ton of money doing exactly what I wanted to do, but it was also moving fast and it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have awareness of consequences of things I was doing or things I'd done in my past and it was fun, dude. Like, I was young. There was no reason to worry about anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, now I, I think a lot more. Um, I read a lot more. I do things that I never would have done and explored if I didn't go through the hardships that I dealt with. And I'm thankful for them, you know? I, 
I don't regret anything. I don't, uh, I don't feel like at any time I, I wish I didn't have this or I wish I wasn't diagnosed with this or I, you know, I don't, even when I feel, even when I feel like shit, it's like, I know these, these ups and downs are going to be a part of my life and learning how to deal with them is just going to get me to a better place. And anytime I come out on the other end, I understand that, you know, that was something I needed to go through, even if I would have thought it's the worst thing that could ever happen to me at the time. And I'm thankful for it, grateful for it. Do you remember that moment when you kind of accepted it? That you were like, okay, this is just me now, and these are things that I just have to go through. And it just became a part of your life. Hmm. I don't know. I'd say it's hard to pinpoint one time, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's still things that I go through. So I have times when, when I, you know don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. Like I wish there was an easier way out. But at the same time, I always know that like it will turn around. And I feel like every time I go through these ups and downs, I learn a little bit more about myself, life and about other people. And, and I'm thankful for it. And I'm in a place now where at least right now, you know, in a place where I can see the bigger picture and I can understand some of the stuff that I will need to continue to do for the rest of my life. It's not like, uh, it's not like you just go and, you know, do a couple things, change this up and it's fixed. It's like, it's like, uh, constant monitoring, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be food or, what I'm doing at that time, you know, being able to slow myself down when I start ramping up and can feel a manic episode coming on. And, you know, it's like if I'm in that state, cause I still get too. And so I have to be careful of how much I take on and how much energy I put into stuff. Cause I can literally, if I'm not careful, stay up for three days and be like crazy productive like Mm -hmm. insanely productive. Um, But I'll get too many projects going. I'll get too much going on. And when I fall out, it's like I have a handle on nothing, you know? And so being able to be aware of all this stuff and being in tune with everything that ties into it um, has been a, you know, learning process and continue to be so are you still snowboarding at all yeah yep um yeah man it's it's still the one thing maybe the only thing in my life where everything falls away you know i can almost you know a lot of times do exactly what i intend to do um i'm in a moment where you know it's happiness it's not sadness it's like just uh contentment i guess you know and it's like action and reaction uh, if i drop in it can be a helicopter you know 100 feet off me somebody 
five feet from the lip of the jump yelling three, two, one as they can. And as soon as I drop in, I don't hear anything. And it's, it's pure focus, pure energy. And so hopefully, you know, I'm learning to get to a place where I can bring that into other parts of my life, not just snowboarding. So snowboarding all be like my backbone. And, you know, just because I don't have any sponsors right now doesn't mean I'm away from snowboarding. Um, just means that I need some, needed some time to like figure stuff out on my own and not feel like other people are depending on me, you know, cause that's a, that can be a big weight sometimes. Do you see yourself getting back into snowboarding in the same way that you were into it before? Yeah, hundred percent, but not, um, you know, getting back into it in the sense that, you know, I'm snowboarding, working on projects, doing stuff like that all the time, but not in the, in the, in the same way that I was, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of changes going on in the industry, a lot of changes just in general life, like stuff's moving so fast with social media. Um, you know, there's not film companies anymore. And so I just, I want to go in a different direction and, you know, and it's like the snowboard industry is, you know, kind of how it's ran since it started is like getting these snow heroes, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't feel like the industry gives enough back and, you know, especially myself. Um, and I want to be able to do more with snowboarding, not just film a video part and try to look pretty and go on premiere tour in the fall. You know, it's not fulfilling anymore for me. So in a best case scenario, what would the industry look like when you get back into it? Or what could you remake it as? Um, well, I don't know that I can make the industry, but I think I can put myself in a position to open up a new way of looking at it and not being so just driven in the moment and this this year-to-year industry, you know? It's a lot longer life than that. And I think snowboarding needs to grow and, you know, look look five and ten years down the road, not just run off every single season without any um, forethought. And, like, look, I don't think that, you know, it's the snowboarding industry's issue problem or whatever. It's just, it's young, you know? And there was a lot of time there where it was the heyday, dude. Everybody was killing it. It was great. Mm Mm-hmm. And then things happen and things change and uh, nobody ever knows the best way to get back to where things were or to make them better, you know? So it's, it's a process and I feel the best way for me to be able to understand that and give back to, you know, something that's given me so much was to step away at least for the time being. And I think that helps you gain a better perspective too. Yeah, I 
I, I agree. So we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff today. Why don't we wrap this up with something a little lighter? Take me through a perfect day at Eagle Crest. What does that look like? (laughs) (laughs) I have this memory of a specific day. It was a Saturday. I don't know, whatever. It was probably in February. And it was when all of us Juno boys, borderline boys, were still riding. You know, Mike hadn't blown his knee out. Snowboarding, skateboarding, dancing, golfing. Uh, <laughs> dude blew his knee out every single <laughs> every way you could think of. You know, <laughs> so we were all still healthy, and we had gotten there relatively early, and so we were first chair. And Eagle Crest and Juno is like one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to, and I've traveled a lot of places in the world. Um, and it was bluebird. It was about 18 inches of powder. And my favorite thing to do in most mountains, at least Eagle Crest and Mount Baker's, go right underneath the chair. And I just remember all of us just partying, like perfect conditions, perfect set of friends. You know, all the boys were there. Um, and so, you know, that would be it. Like, I already have that perfect day, but it would be just, uh, it'd be so nice to, wherever it be, Eagle Crest or whatever, McCall, Idaho or Mount Baker, you know, doing these annual trips with uh, with the Juno boys, I think we'll get back to that place. And it's really more about the people you're with um, than the conditions or the geography that's great dude i i really appreciate you talking with me today man and being so honest yeah of course i uh i really like everything that you've been doing with crude magazine when we were in idaho we listened to the one you did with your father and it, uh you know i've always thought you're a great writer and i'm, I'm just happy that you're in a place where you're doing exactly what you want to do too it's so uh, it's been a pleasure. No worries. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. It means a lot. Yeah, 100%. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Mm, like I said, we're living in a society that's moving so fast. If, you know, we could take away anything, just slow down and, like, take more of a perspective on how you live your life and what you want to do and what's going to... Um, benefit yourself to be able to get to a point where you where everybody you love benefits from your energy you know having a conversation not an argument Mm -hmm. and understanding that there's reasons for everything and taking the time to look at them no matter how hard they are is uh i think one of the most important things having a little bit of humility goes a long way All right, Lando. It's been great talking to you. All right. You too, Code. All right. The Code. That's your new nickname. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I like it. (laughs) Good, because it's irrelevant if you do. (laughs) (laughs) It's just what it is. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's done, dude. The dishes are done, dude. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, you take it easy, dude. All right, man. Love you. All right, love you too. Okay, see ya. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 